The mayor of the District of Columbia recently urged the federal government to get its people back into their offices or give up billions of square feet. The city has ambitious economic goals that could, in its view, make better use of that space. For details, we turn to D.C.'s deputy mayor for planning and economic development, John Falcicchio. Mr. Falcicchio, good to have you on. Well, thanks so much for having me. And just maybe if you would zero in with more detail on what the city would have in mind potentially for, I guess, mostly the leased space that the federal government now occupies, that is to say, pays rent on, but doesn't have any people populating. Absolutely. So, you know, what we are first and foremost, our ask is for the administration to bring federal government workers back and do so by having an enterprise-wide policy on return to office. So Mayor Bowser is a chief executive herself. Uh, She has 37,000 employees. During the pandemic, 40% of those employees were in person. They had to do their work in person. So that means 60% of her 37,000 person workforce is able to have a flexible work schedule. And what we've done is we've said enterprise-wide, three days in the office and up to two days of telework. What we want the federal government to do is have a similar enterprise-wide policy so that every agency isn't trying to leave it to itself. Now, what we know is that the federal government hasn't brought people back in the same way that we have. And so that leaves a lot of office space that isn't being utilized that we can either utilize ourselves, work with nonprofits to fill it. And so we get that vibrancy that you would have in having more workers in the office. Right. There's a couple of issues. One is the space itself that could be repurposed for the types of businesses and nonprofits you want to kind of engender in the city. And the other is the street traffic itself with the food vans and the small restaurants. It's kind of a wasteland in many ways in some stretches because there's nobody to have breakfast and lunch at these places. Well, we know that the federal government in our central business district accounts for 25% of the office space, whether that's owned or leased. And when you think about having that much of the economy sit on the sidelines, it does have an impact on our businesses and our small businesses. And that really has an impact on the number of D.C. residents and residents from the region that they can hire. So for us, this isn't about just seeing if we get workers back in the office for the sense that they should be working in the office. We do think it's a better environment, more collaborative when people are working together. But really, it also has an impact on those small businesses and those frontline workers. You know, during the pandemic, we said we're all in this together and we'll get through it together. And now it seems that we're through it. We're saying to folks, well, you get back to work and we're going to kind of hang back and work from home. And do we have any statistics on small business closures or how many fewer restaurants or any kind of metrics on that particular issue? Yeah. So in the District of Columbia, before the pandemic, there were about 800,000 jobs. That's total 800,000 jobs. And because of the pandemic, we dropped to about 712,000. Now we're actually cresting uh, about 775,000 jobs. So we've almost made back all the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. But what we know is that the jobs that are still missing in the city are primarily in hospitality, food service, and uh, attraction. And so what we've seen is tourism bounce back with leisure traveler uh, coming back, but we don't see that same activity uh, in the business traveler. And that business traveler isn't coming back because the economy in the district is dominated by the federal government. And so we need uh, the federal government to come back to draw back that business traveler as well. That will help our small businesses and help our small businesses employ more D.C. residents and residents from around the region. 
We are speaking with John Falchicchio. He is deputy mayor for planning and economic development for the District of Columbia. And when having these discussions or urging the government, who do you talk to? Because that is a highly decentralized decision from what I understand. So, so far it is, but, you know, the federal government also has ways to implement government-wide policy. And so we talked to partners at the Office of Budget and Management, Office of Personnel Management, GSA, because those are really kind of the three organizations or entities that'll help the president make this decision. And so what we're really asking for is that enterprise-wide policy that makes it clear for agencies. Now, even with our policy in the District of Columbia government, the policy, again, three days in the office, up to two days work from home. Each agency director is allowed to implement that in the way that they can still carry out their mission, but give workers flexibility. So the better normal that we were all hoping for after the pandemic can still be realized by bringing people back. We don't need everyone to come back all the time, but we do need them to come back most of the time. And what is your sense of how the government compares to the other big occupiers of D.C. space, and I'm thinking primarily of law firms. There's a few of those down there. And then also the big nonprofits, the AEIs, the Catos, the ones that occupy you know, big buildings, the Brookings, those kinds of groups. Yeah. So over the last couple of months, we've actually seen a couple indicators that show that there is activity happening. So we track that in metro ridership, whether it's rail or bus. Uh, We also have some indicators of office utilization, and that's kind of ticked up over the course of the fall and into the albeit mild winter that we've had been experiencing. And so really what's missing is that rush of people that can only come back if there's an enterprise-wide policy by the federal government. Got it. And just a quick question on the number of jobs. You say you're cresting around 775,000. The population is around 700,000, I think. So yeah. do we know how many of that come and go? Because you don't have 725,000 to send on the city every day. What, yeah. What's the number that balloon in and out each each afternoon? Yeah. So uh, pre-pandemic, we actually, of all major American cities, we were the one that grew by the most during the day per capita, right? And uh, we really need to experience that again in order to realize our economic potential. And so the federal government could be a big partner in that by bringing workers home. And really what we've heard from, we've heard from some of our partners in labor, labor unions who represent office cleaners and office security officials and others who are in that space, real frontline workers, and they're being impacted by fewer office workers coming back. Yes, in fact, the SIEU itself, to name a few, to name one of a few, has a really big building in the district, and those are not the people they represent that work in that building. I wonder what their population day-to-day is of people in there versus their teleworkers. Do we know? Yeah, so I don't have that data in front of me, but what I do know is one of the things that, kind of going back to what the mayor said in her uh, inaugural address, was that there is an opportunity, too, for us not just to talk about bringing folks back, but if folks are not going to come back and there's less federal office space needed, we have a great opportunity to partner with the federal government like we have on big real estate projects like St. Elizabeth's and Walter Reed and Hill East to do kind of a scatter site approach across our downtown to take sites that are underutilized and bring them back to productive use. Yeah, like the Southwest, too, that, that area. Yeah. And, you know, one of the sites, and I know this is a site of contention in the region, but where the FBI lands, wherever it lands, and it seems like it'll land in Maryland or Virginia with an executive office being here in Washington, D.C., that tract of land on Pennsylvania Avenue creates a great opportunity for us to do a mixed-use development with our partners in the federal government and draw more residents downtown. One of the mayor's goals in her comeback plan is to attract 15,000 
more residents to the downtown to make it more vibrant. Yeah, because right now that FBI headquarters, the way it's situated, you've probably walked by that building as I have. And in the winter, it's like walking in Pyongyang. It's just an empty, windswept, forbidding place with concrete rising on either side. Well, we are just a few blocks away from the FBI headquarters. And one thing I will tell you is that it does seem that a lot of their folks are in the office and working. I know it because I see them at the lunch counter often, and they make the lines a little bit longer because they've come back. That's the kind of leadership we need to see at the federal government agencies. And a lot of that, I think, is because that's a mission that you can't carry out by everybody being separate. You've got to bring people back together to collaborate, to work together, to mentor. And that's what we think more federal government agencies should do. And what about traffic and automobile movement? I know everyone has this great ideal of green inner cities, but the fact is lots of people drive down and it's getting you know tougher to get through some of these areas. Even the outlying counties are taking some of these measures. And that yeah. really mitigates for people to stay home. Yeah. So what we've seen is some utilization actually of, of our bus is starting to come back. Actually, it's at about 77% of pre-pandemic levels. Where we see a lack of ridership is on the metro rail. So we've got to do more to attract riders back to metro rail. That will help us with the traffic issue. The other thing is that metro is doing a great job over the last few weeks of bringing more cars into service, and that allows them to run more frequent service. And so as that progresses, we think that the riders will come back as well. No chance of bringing back 14th and a half street. So we uh, we think that uh, I miss that gotta, street. We got we got to get more people onto Metro Rail. That's the best way to kind of take some pressure off the roadways. All right, John Falchicchio is deputy mayor for planning and economic development for the District of Columbia. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks again for having me and appreciate the conversation. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com/slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.